And I used to have that shirt framed in my house because it was a good reminder as to don't get too carried away with yourself. So that's I'm why that jersey. I'm surprised your better half myself. didn't leave that one. Up here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. For every time I came back late from a boy's house, she's got uh, England Argentina on the TV. <laughs> you weren't any good anyway. <laughs> house of Rugby Ireland, here on Joe, together with Guinness. Game changed. Hello and welcome along to House of Rugby Ireland here on Joe Together with Guinness. I'm Emer Constantine and I'm joined by E. Madigan today. Also a very warm House of Rugby welcome to former Harlequins, England and Lions winger and staunch Arsenal fan Hugo Monnier. Hugo, you're very welcome to the show today. How have you been getting on? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks so much for having me on. How are you guys keeping? Yeah, we're all good. We're hoping we can get some... Um, podcasting tips from you now that you're a pro you're you're hosting your own type of podcast have you any tips for two rugby players here no not at all i'm still finding my feet um i love podcasts and i think it's brilliant format great part of the media but more than anything just just having fun um getting to getting to new depths which you don't normally get to it's fashion tips. I'm after Ugo. Anna's a big fan of your uh, your dress sense. She wants wants me to ask you where you're getting your clothes these days. <laughs> <laughs> she wants me to get out of my tracksuit. <laughs> Basically, anything anything that I'm gifted um, is is <laughs> I'll, I'll always wear. So if it's free, I'm definitely wearing it. Put it that way. <laughs> Brilliant. You go, your last time visiting Ireland wasn't so welcoming. You didn't feel the welcome of the Irish the last time. I feel like we got ahead of ourselves after that Grand Slam win in 2018. Yeah, I reckon so. Like, I love Dublin. I love Ireland. I like Irish people. And there's some stereotypes that never, ever budge. Like the English will forever be arrogant, even when we're not. The Welsh will always be brilliant choir singers and the Irish will always be lucky. However, after 2018 and the fantastic year that you had, I remember going to the World Rugby Awards where Joe Schmidt was coach of the year, Johnny Sexton was player of the year. You were team of the year. You had an absolute riot, right? Well, it went to your head a little bit. And uh, um, England were playing Ireland in Dublin and I came over. I flew over, got off the plane, got into my taxi and he's like, hey, so you're here for the rugby this weekend? I was like, yeah. And he went, who do you think is going to win? And I thought, I said, well, I think England's going to win. He started laughing at me. And I was like, like we got a good team. Like, I don't know why it's funny. Anyway, got out of the taxi, went to hotel, went to reception. Oh, are you here for the rugby? Yeah, she went, um, who do you think is going to win? I said, I think England are going to win. And genuine, they were like bent double. Like I was a comedian. They're all like laughing <laughs> themselves. And I just thought, like... Like, this is a bit much. So I went to the game and I was I was there as just a fan, like having pints before the match or sat in with all the Irish fans. It was brilliant. And obviously we, we played quite well that day because England aren't crap at rugby and uh, we ended up winning. But it was like 72 minutes and um, tens of thousands of Irish fans started like leaving the stadium. So I shouted out was... 
the fire alarm gone off? And it might be a to well. <laughs> this lady sat in front of me was giving me all of this. Oh, like, my God. They were, honestly, they were livid. And I was like, well, apparently we're no good at uh, rugby. Apparently we've just come over for a bit of a laugh. So uh, that was the last time I was in Ireland. It didn't start on the right foot, but I end up having a fabulous night. So I look forward to coming back sometime soon. Maybe the underdog's uh, tag suits us better. I think it does. Well, you'd be the underdogs this weekend, so I don't know. Maybe I don't need to get carried away and cocking myself now because it certainly didn't serve me right um, the last time uh, we played that tag anyway. Um, Ugo, you retired at the age of 32 um, in 2015. How have you been finding your time, I suppose, fill us in on, on since then up until now? What have you been, what have you been filling your time with? Um, yeah, a lot of people say I retired quite early, but for me, it felt like a good time. Um, my body was starting to creak a little bit and also had really good opportunity to perhaps create a, a pathway for myself into the media world. You seem to be on the other side of the camera quite a bit, so it's nice to have you in actually answering the questions for once. Um, <laughs> you had a lot of injuries in 2010. I suppose you, you suffered a really bad injury and then you came back and only played one final game with England. That must have been a really difficult period in your life. Um, I suppose coming back from injury and having such a, a difficult time. Um, did you did you find it hard or did you struggle during that time? I did struggle because it was at that time I felt I was like playing my best rugby um, and you just want to just play every single week um, and with that I got um, I got offered a contract to go and play in Racing and at that point um, it, was, it was a significant contract they would have made me the highest paid winger in the world and I turned it down because I wanted to win trophies with Harlequins and I wanted to carry on playing for England and I ticked one of those boxes at least because I won a trophy with, um, with, with Harlequins, but only played one more game for England. So <laughs> I'm kind of thinking, should I have just gone to Paris and taken the cash? I don't really know. But, um, but yeah, <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? You hang around because you're like, you, you can only play for your country if you play in England. But um, I guess that's the gamble you take. Um, but I was like thrilled to like come through the other side of that injury and still play some decent rugby and still win some trophies and um, give everything to the cl- to the only club that I played for. Obviously, with uh, with the injuries, we were talking earlier about Dan Levy and the comeback that he's made from you know a very nasty knee injury. What did you, what did you find tough at the time when you're when you were out injured uh, back in two thousand and ten? I think, um, and you guys will be able to understand exactly how it is. The reason you play rugby is to play games um, and be part of a team. And when everyone's out training and it's just you and a physio in a physio room or up in a gym um, rehabbing yourself, it can be quite lonely um, because you take a lot of self-worth out of your ability to be able to do what you do on the pitch and all of a sudden you can't even contribute. So you feel like a bit of a freeloader because you're a paid professional to play rugby, not to rehab, not to do gym, not to be great on the track. And it can feel quite isolated. Um, We've all had those injuries. And yeah, it's probably just the loneliness itself and the fact that rugby is just taken away from you. And I think that's often why you see players come back early and re-injure themselves because they put pressure on themselves to want to come back. There's pressure from the coaches to get back on the pitch and to 
really just feed back into the team. So, yeah, for me, it was just like leaving that team environment. That's the hardest thing I found. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Like, I think the biggest thing for us is obviously games and it's your focus in the week. And if you're injured, you yeah. take that away. It's very yeah. hard to maintain your focus. Let's say you've a, you know, a three or four month injury. You've got to completely reset your goals and kind of go, right, how am I going to get on top of this injury without having games to prepare for? And then you're not going through the kind of emotional roller coaster with the guys within yeah. the squad. You know, you don't get to experience yeah. the highs, the lows, and you do feel like you're on the outside looking in for a large part of it. And, I think you throw on top of that, like you, you, you can't get away from that feeling of, you, you know, you feel like you're robbing a living a bit when you're out injured and, yeah. and you know, can't contribute. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I found that quite tough in, I, I got another bad injury, I think 2013, 2014, I had a groin reconstruction and that was in the first 15 minutes of the brand new season. So you do a three month preseason um, and I remember, I think it was 10 minutes into the game, I scored a try. And then scoring the try, I got tackled and I knew my groin had gone. The physio came onto the pitch and he went, are you okay? And I was actually just embarrassed that 10 minutes into a new season, I've got a serious injury. So I said, I think I'm fine. I tried to, ru- how do you run off like a ruptured groin? But <laughs> I stayed on the pitch, made it worse, came off after like 15 minutes. And like I was a senior player at Harlequins. And the other thing that I felt I lost was my voice. And even though I played over 200 games for the club, just sat there in meetings and the boys have lost games. And I couldn't say, oh, lad, you need to do this or that or culture's this or whatever it is. Like, shut up. You didn't play. You didn't play. So uh, just keep your noise down, get yourself right. And, you know, that can be, that can feel quite debilitating at times as well. So I think there's such a wide range of emotions you go through when you get injured. And it's probably not something too many people perhaps have touched upon, especially during your playing career. Yeah, I think that the it's never actually fully documented either. You know, the media only drip fed the actual details and stuff. And it's only through, I suppose, either finishing your career or, um, you know, podcasting and things like this that you actually get a chance yeah. to open up about that. And the people on the outside don't actually understand the ordeal it is, not just physically. Like, yes, you are pushing your body physically through their limits and it's step by step, it's day by day. And sometimes it's going backwards a day if you don't reach that step that you're supposed to or go backwards a week when you're not hitting your targets. So it's physically and mentally draining. And I think people on the outside don't see the see both sides of that they just see it and and especially they see a six week you know they will be out for six weeks and then why aren't you back after six weeks and the expectations yeah. of you to get back in that time as well is really challenging the other thing is is that no player ever wants to be injured um and there are some players and i was one of them i got loads of like little niggles i only had two major operations and I find myself quite lucky for that but you know you can get um with a tag of being injury prone but like I never went out to to be injured like I just did it you know everyone trains hard and you do your prehab and you make sure you're trying to be as professional as you can but the game is so demanding um and we only look at it as a physical demand but the mental toll is actually quite significant especially for some of the young fellas um I um was chatting to an academy kid at Harlequins. He's in his first year of his academy, ruptured his Achilles. And I remember my first year, I broke my toe in the first year. I hadn't even signed a contract. I'd just finished my A-level, so finished college, broke my toe, was out for three months, and then broke it again, was out for the season. And I was really lucky. In fact, it was an Irishman that put his arm around me. It was Keith Wood, 2001, and he was well-played the year. 
And I look back at that time and those two injuries in quick succession were the best things that ever happened to me because I didn't know what hard work was until I was training with Keith Wood. And there, in 2001, there wasn't anyone better to learn from than the world's best player. Um, and so I've always kind of looked upon injuries as an opportunity to focus on something that you wouldn't else have had time to do. Because whilst you're in the thick of it, you know, rugby's pretty cyclical. You just go, rugby, match, feel like crap on a Sunday, Monday, review, preview, team run, game. And there isn't any space to breathe. Um, so sometimes... And I've, and I've chatted to internationals over the last couple of years and no one wants to miss games, but it felt like it was an enforced break just to get away from the game and just take a time out. Not because you ever want it, but at times it's probably your body just, just screaming out for help. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like when, if you look at like the internationals and they've got, let's say, 30 games in a season between club games and international games, to get a break mid-season with a mild muscle tear that has you out for you know three or four weeks is probably a blessing in disguise. But you know the flip side of that, there's also very very bad times to get injured. And like you touched on it there, after doing a three-month block of pre-season and being in like your prime shape, and to get yeah. injured in you know even worse would be a pre-season friendly, which are always littered yeah. with injuries. <laughs> there's no, there's nothing worse yeah. than that because then you're going you're coming back in and you know October, November, December time. All the lads have played loads of games. They're up to speed. You're coming in. You mightn't have played for nearly six months. And, you know, you can nearly see a full season slip away from you that way, you know? I never minded, like, a little Christmas, New Year's injury. If I could just pick up, like, a great one hammy a couple of weeks out, I'll see you the second week of Jan. Like, that's all right. No, I'll take those. I'm not crying about that. I'm not feeling isolated. Then no, I'm okay with that. Middle of December, Hugo's there doing a thousand calf raises before going out to do a training session. <laughs> what do you up to, Hugo? Um, I'm trying to pop a calf here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Practicing 60 meter drop goals. Pulling the hamstring. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. It must be the schedule, guys. We've I'm rubbing growing later. Corruption growing later. Oh. Uh, yeah, Hugo, we were I was listening to podcasts over the last while and over lockdown I suppose everyone got into podcasts and that's really all it kept us going but I, I listened to CJ Standard chatting about his time away in South Africa and about how he doesn't remember a time where he didn't have some sort of a niggle or some sort of an injury playing and I feel like a lot of rugby players are in that position at the moment where you're probably the same Ian. you know you just it's week on week and you you try and get something right but then something else pops up and you know, the the demands on rugby players these days, it's immense and the schedule is immense and those injuries are, you don't ever play a game fresh these days, I suppose, and you can jump in there that, you know, there's always something bothering you going into a game. Yeah, certainly. I think that's the way the game's gone now, you know, and you've got experts around you, rehabbers, prehabbers, physios, the, the works to, to, to try and get your body turned over within a week to get you outperforming. Um, I think you can get into a cycle with injuries where you just feel like no matter what you're doing, you're picking up knocks, you're getting unlucky in training, you're picking up more knocks in games, and that has a knock-on effect in itself. But then the flip side of that is you can also feel bulletproof for a period of time. You could go, you know, yeah. five, six, eight, nine, ten games where you're not picking up any niggles, and you feel like, geez, this game is easy, and there's nothing better when you're in that kind of flow. And I'm sure you experienced that, Hugo, at you know, prime times in, in your career. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And although I'm talking about injuries and how it can have like negative impacts, what I would say is like, I absolutely love the game and everything that I am and everything that I've earned, I've got it through the game. And yes, I've had some unfortunate circumstances and, but who hasn't like who hasn't, especially this year with COVID, um, I'll do it all over again. Um, certainly don't want to sound like I'm slagging off the game. It is really demanding. And all I would say is the only reason I'm speaking out is because I've, I don't think um, I'm on the other side of the fence right now. I talk about the game when I'm in the commentary box and I hear the hits. I just wish people had a a greater appreciation of what it goes into that 80 minutes on a Saturday. Um, We were talking earlier in terms of you've been at work, you know, your podcast, and then you go to train. No one sees that. If you play crap on Saturday, flipping it, she doesn't want it. Uh, you know, it, it's just total nonsense. So, the only I'm just coming from a perspective that we should really cherish the athletes that go onto the pitch who give absolutely everything. And this is where sport kind of straddles two spheres. It's not just sport, but it's entertainment. You know, people sit in the stands, sit from home, flick on the TV because they want to be entertained. And if you get it wrong, they don't care about what you did on Monday or what injury you've just come back from. You just better, um, you just better entertain me for this eighty minutes. And if you're not, I'm going to tweet about it and I'll slag you <laughs> off about it. But, but actually, the reality is, is that. Everyone works really hard right across the board and sacrifices so much. And everyone's been on their own journey, whether it's overcoming injuries, um, physical injuries, mental injuries, whatever they might be. And it's all for your entertainment. So um, I just hope people appreciate exactly what players, men and women really go through. Okay, I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, it's so much easier to sit behind a screen on a Saturday night than to get out there and get um, absolutely double tackled and double teamed by people going on, on a rugby field. But I suppose talking about entertainment and there's been so many times where you have entertained us. And I suppose namely that yeah. 2008 Lions tour where you were top scorer in that test. Like that must have been, I suppose we spoke about your lows of injuries, but there's days that, you know, you forget about those injuries. They make up for all those all those bad times that you've gone through and, and tests like that Lions Tour, tests like playing for England. Those days must be really special in your mind. Yeah. Um, yeah, p- playing for England um, w- was incredible. I remember the first time, like, I... I got to represent my country. Um, It's one of the best days of my, not just playing career, like actually of my life. Um, Being stood there singing the national anthem. It's um, especially the setup of Twickenham is really special. So just above the tunnel, either side of it, all the parents, mums, dads, girlfriends, wives, brothers, family, that's where they sit. And I remember being stood there alongside my teammates. And the one thing I always did as a kid, and even in the position playing for England, was just like look for my mum. So I was so nice to like see my mum, like absolutely eyeball her. And it was a great moment for me. But also I felt I was stood in that position. I was representing everyone that worked hard and sacrificed for me to be in that spot. So I was stood on behalf of all of them. I was just the lucky one to go out and you know, just, just live my dreams and play in front of like 80,000 people. So, yeah, I, I feel like I've been very fortunate um, in my career to do some of the things that I did. You know, the 09 Lions tour was was just insane. Like, it was insane. And I felt as if I was so blessed to play with the last um, – it was the um, end of an era for lots of those legends as well, uh, in a Lions perspective – 
Paul O'Connell, Brian O'Driscoll, O'Gara, Martin Williams, Stephen Jones. They're guys that I'd grown up watching. Um, and then to call them teammates was nuts. And, yeah, that third test, um, just scoring intercept in that manner. Um, I, I always describe it in this way. Um, so I scored an intercept from, like, 70 metres right. It's, what, six and a half, seven seconds. I scored at age 26. I started playing rugby age 13. So it took me 13 years to get six and a half, seven seconds of glory. But if I had to do another 13 years again, I would do it repeatedly just for that moment because it was just spine tinglingly. It was just everything that I ever wanted rugby to mean and be all in that one moment. You had the crowd roaring for... That's it is. It's amazing. And you had the crowd roaring for those six seconds, which I'm sure like you re- relive over and over in your head. And it, it probably felt like a montage moment where you're running yeah. and it's everything is slow mode and you're taking it all in. Or did it happen like super quick and you just relive it over and over again in your head? I never intended to intercept. I only meant to make a tackle. Like Sean Edwards had a real aggressive blitz defence. And so as a winger, he wanted us really high up in that line. And so my intention was just to make a man and ball hit. I think they had like a three-man overlap. And as a winger, you've got to be adaptable. The pitcher changes so quick. And like a play up against quality tends like uh, ear and there and it's almost like <laughs> cat and mouse with him. So I try and show yeah. a picture to fool him into doing something, pulling the trigger, whether it's kicking or passing, whatever. So I try to change the picture. And as I was within five metres, I thought, hang on a second, I'm not making a tackle anymore. I'm going to take an intercept. And there's no better feeling as a winger taking an intercept because the moment you catch it, you know you're scoring. <laughs> like you just do. And... Yeah. Um, I, I knew as soon as I caught it, I, I was going to score. But the most remarkable thing about it was just the support of the Lions. I mean, it, as I scored the try and looked up, it felt like you were at a home match. Um, just sea of red everywhere. And, yeah, it was, it was a great moment, like real, real special moment. It really was. Yeah, it, it's funny there, like touching on like that you know what an out half can do like I think it's a bit of a chess match all day between the wingers like the out yeah. halves trying to mani- you know trying to manipulate the backfield you know totally. trying to sh- shape one way kick another way get a cross field in get an over the top pass in but it's funny when an, when a winger comes up with an intercept it's almost it's like a checkmate it's like I've got you this is over and it's it's it is crushing because of of the knock-on effect it has you know strategically within the team it's like right do they know how they're attacking? Because that wing has just figured us out and it can really, um, you know, stick you for the rest of the game. 100%. I remember the first time I played against Rono Gara, it was Monster Quinns at the stoop and I'd never played against a player that could, if I was five metres out of position, he would find that space over my head. He'd love the like low torpedo spiral and uh, playing against him was an education and straight away, once you've been found out, you have to go back to the drawing board and just work on your game. So playing against players like him was was a proper education. And, yeah, total cat and mouse. I'm forever trying to tell lies in my body language and where I'm positioned to try and get you to do something that you don't want to do. And you're forever trying to paint pictures and with your body language. So, like, with you, for example, you would catch the ball from left to right. You would open yourself up to pretend like you were going to kick. I would then automatically 
and he dropped, then you shove um, and miss one. And I'm out of position, 15 hits a hard line. I've been caught out. So we're yeah. both just trying to deceive. And that's the beauty of attack against defence. Attack's just about deception. And defence is about trying to solve some of the riddles that attack forever throw at you. Um, it's almost a little bit like a Rubik's Cube trying to get the... Um, get all the colours on the right place and one move can have a knock-on impact to everything. Um, I don't think wingers today get enough credit for how much work they have to do because not everything is frontline faced. You have to make sure the backfield's covered and then you have to rely upon your 15 blindside winger, what the nine is doing, what the 10 is doing, and you're making split-second decisions. And all of that changes so quickly. Um, and the better you can get at reading body language, telling lies and making good decisions, but also being flexible within that decision-making, the better a defensive winger you can become. I think it's also difficult when, you, when we're looking forward to the English game at the weekend. Like England now have the likes of Farrell, Slade, Daly, who are all kicking threats and kicking options, which yeah. makes life as a winger really, really difficult because you're not just focusing solely on the 10, you're focused on the other kicking options as well. So it, it's just a complete heads up game and it's a complete game of, of, well, where am I supposed to be and where is the best position to be based on who has the ball at, at any given time? Yeah, England will go after Ireland's back three and not because they're... Uh, missing personnel because they go after everyone's back three. Um, France, last six nations, I think they scored four tries from kicks in behind because France just didn't solve that puzzle. They didn't really do a very good job in that back three. They went after Georgia last week. They went after Italy the week before kicking and that kick pressure game is a massive weapon in that England team. And when you look at someone like Ben Young's 101 caps, Owen Farrell, the 10, or George Ford, Henry Slade, Elliot Daly, You've got some brilliant ball players um, and great um, and great decision makers within that back line, um, and that's going to be a massive test for Ireland this weekend. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing how that physical game of chess plays out. Who do you think? Um, well, we'll dive deeper into it more, into it more now in a while. But who do you think has the the upper edge or the advantage this weekend? You know, obviously Ireland have a weakened squad name today. James Ryan just named as captain, obviously without. Normal captain Johnny Sexton Henshaw's out injured, obviously. Ringrose, you know, we are pretty depleted, I suppose, in the backs, but the main part probably will come in the scrums and, and in the forwards and who's going to win that, win that battle. Yeah, I chatted to Rory Best about this yesterday. Um, I look at the England pack and I reckon I could, I mean, I don't know what you guys think, but I reckon at least six of England's pack could all be test starters in the Lions tour next summer. Um, when you've got that quality, it, it, it matters. It matters. England play a very confrontational physical game and they're very good at it. Um, Carl Sinclair is a lion. Jamie George is a lion. Mako Vinopola is a lion. Um, Joe Marler's not played. He's a lion. He's on the bench. Um, Maritoji is a lion. He's going to go. Um, then I look at the back row. Billy Vinopola go was a lion. Tom Curry, one of the best in the world. <clears throat> I mean, they've got a phenomenal pack. Um, and the strength and depth is, is a joke. You know, someone like Sam Simmons, who got named um, European Player of the Year, is not even in the 31-man squad. Um, Premiership Player of the Season, as named by the players, Jack Willis, made his debut last week. 
probably won't play this week. It's it's frightening the strength and depth England have. Um, but there's one thing having it that um, it's a better weapon when you can mobilise it. I think England have a game plan which which really suits them at the moment. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think if you look at the platform that that pack gives, the likes of Owen Farrell, Elliot Daly, Slade, it, it provides them with so many options off front football. And even even at that, they still play a, quite a conservative game plan. You know, they yeah. um, they don't pull the trigger too early on. You know, they, they won't yeah. wait until it's a... Uh, or they won't pull the trigger when it's, let's say, a five on four or six v five. They'll be patient. They'll keep the ball in front of the pack, let them soak it up, soak it up. And then eventually they'll get like a five on three, a six on three, and then they'll just execute to the space, take the space, take an easy edge, and then the fours just come again and bludgeon you again. So I, I yeah, yeah, I think f- for for the game this weekend, you know, it's it it will it will start with the pack. Ireland have to get parity there. If England are nudging forward, nudging forward, it it opens up the backfield, opens up the width, and it, it could yes. be you know a, a tough day. But um, when you name that when you name that English pack there, you know. <laughs> It, it, it is going to be a tough day, but I, I think Ireland also have have some some weapons of their own. Like we've seen Will Con- yeah. Will Connors in in recent weeks. Like yeah. I haven't seen t- I haven't seen tackling like it. It's it's phenomenal the way he chops guys. He's not the biggest guy in the world, but he gets guys on the ground really quickly. And we've yeah. got quality quality jacklers in the team. We saw Andrew Porter come up, come up with a few in, in recent games. CJ Standers yeah. up there with the best in the game at getting over it. So, you know, hopefully we'll see that at the weekend and if Ireland can get penalties around the middle of the field, get some territory and then get their own power game going, I think it could be a really tight match at the weekend. Yeah, I'm really excited by it and I've named all of that England pack, but that's not a disparaging note on the Ireland pack. I think whenever it's England against Ireland, that that rivalry, that tribalism really does pull through. I was there 2018 when you lot rocked up, won the Grand (laughs) Slam at Saturday. That scar still hurts me like it does. Do you know what I mean? Um, I was there in Dublin last year when the boys showed up and did a brilliant job. But when I look at someone like James Ryan... Um, we're looking at a world-class player and he needs to have a massive game. But I think with top players, you look across at who you're playing against and he's going head-to-head with Maratoji. I think the two of them, quite simply, could be Test Lions um, in, in that second row, in, in, in the engine room. He will want to have the game of his life because he's playing against quality. And Mara will also want to have the game of his life because he's playing against quality. So I think there's plenty there. You've got Kian Healy, who's a test centurion. Um, I also think there's some wounds. You look at Andrew Porter. Um, he got a bit of a hiding when Saracens played against Leinster earlier on in the year. So he'll certainly want to right some wrongs. And there's a, uh, they're a proud bunch. They are a proud bunch, but... I'm just confident in what England can deliver. Eddie Jones said something really telling, which I just haven't been able to forget. Um, He said the hardest discipline in rugby is um, tactical discipline. And I see an England side that are just very happy to stick into what the script is. They didn't deviate um, away from it against Georgia when they could have easily just chucked the ball around because you know you're going to beat Georgia. And they just went kick driving more, driving more, driving more. It wasn't pretty, but it was so clinical. And I just hope that England have that um, tactical aptitude and just stick at it for 80 minutes. Because if they do that, I, um, I think Ireland might find it tough on Saturday. 
You said that England like to kick against no matter what team and stick with that game plan and the tactical awareness yeah. that they have. And obviously Ireland have a pretty new and young back three, namely with Hugo Keenan there and um, obviously James Lowe getting his first cap last week. We've seen obviously a lot of James Lowe playing with Leinster and what he can do with them. Do you think that's going to be Ireland's weakness at the weekend? Because England will play that tactical kicking game that we that we always see them do. I think it's like what Ian was just saying. Um, if they do find space, it'll be a consequence of what's happened up front. Um, because if you're allowed to kick on your terms, and whether that's come from Ben Youngs, George Ford, Owen Farrell, Henry Slade, Elliot Daly, I've just named five of them. If they're allowed to kick on their terms, they will find space. So unless, if Ireland get parity up front, it'll make it a lot harder for the, for those backline players to be able to pull the trigger. So, um, it's something they always look to go to, and I think they've got some brilliant guys who are good in the air. Johnny May is exceptional. Elliot Daly's very good. Um, but it, you just, I can't um, get away from what happens up front. That will dictate where the game's played and how it's played and the pace of the game ultimately. Hugo, we um, we saw James Lowe make his first cap last week, and I think he's he's someone that Ireland haven't had the, the joy of, of being able to select. You know, he's he's a real powerful guy out on the wing, not something that we've you know had in in Ireland probably through the professional era. For you in in your playing days, um, would you prefer to come up against someone you know strong and physical like James Lowe, or would you prefer to come up against the likes of Cordero or you know one of these kind of hot steppers? Yeah, like Lama or James Lowe. Lama can like embarrass you. He could like he could make a hi- highlights reel in the opening forty minutes. He, he's a joke of a player, but as as can James Lowe. I think James Lowe, for a totally different reasons, quite an important player for Ireland because I don't know about you, but whenever he gets the ball, it seems to be this electricity, this energy that just pours right throughout the team and. He changes people's support lines because when he gets the ball, you know he'll get over the advantage line. He might break a tackle. He might offload. He might just beat people. He's um, he's massive. He's absolutely massive. Um, but to answer your question, who would I prefer to play against? That's quite a tough one because they're both really good players. But I'd probably be more worried about Jordan Lama. Um, yeah. Just the unpredictability. I think... With low, if you're on your game, if you're concentrating physically, if you man up, um, you can back yourself to confining him. With Lama, he could do two or three players in about seven or eight meters, and there is there's there's just not a lot you can do for about that. But he's the type of player where he's beating two or three players. You stood under the stick, scored a try, and you're looking around and you're like. We actually didn't do anything wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like, just, <laughs> we didn't yeah. do anything wrong. Yeah. He's just really good, and uh, that's that's unique. I think what what James Lowe will offer though this week, if he if he's selected, is just you know coming up against that English wall in defence. You know, the, the, there's going to be plenty of times in that game where there's actually not going to be anything on, but it's about being able to survive that phase, getting our forwards going sure. again, and then allowing our backs to have another run. Um, we probably haven't had that size in the past, you know, being being able to bring him in off his blind wing, you know, make the gain line again and allow Ireland to keep playing on front football. I think that's going to be a big positive for us. And I think we've seen in, in recent games against England, once they've taken away Ireland playing off the front foot, it's made for a long day for us. Um, so I'm really hoping that, you know, we'll see that at the weekend. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like, Mads, you'll know as a fly half, just when the heat's coming on you, just having the ability to be able to pop a ball to someone running blind um, and just just to bail that option, just to get you on that front foot. And uh, he's a big part of that. You can almost use him like an extra back rower, but having a big back running against backs um, can be quite a deadly option. Like we saw his physicality last week in that try that he actually scored where yeah. you know, it was coming off the back of a scrum. You knew, you could see by the setup where he was that he was getting the ball, but yet they still could not defend his sheer power, physicality and strength to get over the line when, you know, the way he was set up at the back of the scrum originally, you knew he was either going to go blind or open and he was the man with the ball, but still they couldn't do anything to stop him last weekend. Yeah, saw that try before. Remember Chicago, New Zealand, same play. Was it Henshaw that ended up scoring it? It's like, it's really simple. But um, once again, and it's not like me to start just forever talking about a forward pack, but when you get a dominant scrum, you can dictate and do whatever you want. It was a one-pass play, but you should be able to defend that from five metres out. But once your flankers are taken out of it and you've got threats like James Lowe, Jameson Gibson Park running and scooting, Henshaw coming hard to the line, like you will find holes or gaps or mismatches or weak shoulders somewhere. And uh, fair play to Ireland. They're very good at taking our opportunities when they're in the right areas. Anyway, you go finally, we're just going to chat about the video that you teamed up with BT Sport about back in August before, before rugby started back up again. It spoke about racism and you spoke very openly about your own experience about racism and discrimination. Can you fill us in a little bit more about, about that video? Yeah, it was, it's a bit of a mad one. Like, I'm, I'm not an emotional person. <laughs> like, I'm not. Like, ask my missus. I didn't cry on our wedding day. I didn't cry at the birth of both of our kids. And I'm talking about this. I hope you have to say this. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, to... You have to set the scene to let everyone know you were not emotional. <laughs> I'm know. not emotional, okay? I don't cry. Um, I, but, but I am a passionate person. I think there's a fine line between the two. And yeah, I was, I was telling this story about how. I um, got abused uh, as a two-year-old kid and I wasn't expecting it, but I ended up just crying. And uh, I think it's the first time that I actually um, publicly spoke about it and perhaps that's what it was because you know what it's like. Um, all of a sudden you make yourself vulnerable and you're sharing a part of you with, with, with a lot of people. But I also felt it was really important to do that because um, I know racism affects a lot of people and it's often something which just isn't talking about. It's become a taboo topic. And the only way you can make taboo topics non-taboo is by talking about it, being open, by, by being honest. And uh, sometimes that means you have to give a piece of you away and open yourself up. And I was... I was really happy to do it. Um, it felt right, um, and yeah, it was yeah, it was it was bizarre, but it, at the same time, slightly therapeutic as well. I don't think you realise the effect that it probably had on millions and thousands of people out there, and. I think that the rugby world and not not only the rugby world, I think the sporting world in general has really come on board and supported, I suppose, rugby against racism and every other sport against racism. And have you seen it evidently change the, the mindset of people and the sporting background help along the way? I think so. I think uh, for a long while, it's, it's a tough thing. Um, it's hard to fix a problem if you don't ever admit there's a problem. Um, and I'm not saying it's like widespread at all. Um, 
but it has been a part of the game. Um, I think um, classism has a bigger problem in rugby, actually, than racism. But, but yeah, the feedback's been amazing. Um, all you want to be able to do is instigate and start off a conversation. And by starting off a conversation, um, you actually get to... Uh, understand and learn from people's experiences, um, whether they be positively or negatively. And what you want to do is actually, you don't want it to be divisive. You want it to be inclusive. You want people to come together and actually um, protect the very thing that, like I've already said, has given me so much. Like, I love our game. And it's not about me. I've, I've retired. I've retired a long time ago. But I want people to really enjoy the game, thrive in the game, current players and the next generation of players and if we can create an environment and an atmosphere where people feel um, ultimately included but more so than anything allowed to just be themselves um, and accepted as themselves and that's not just strictly race that's gender that's sex is and that's sex that's that's absolutely everything Um, we always say the game is a game for all Um, well if that's what we say it is then we have to ensure that that's exactly how it looks and feels. Um, and that takes hard work. You know, um, you're both in long-term relationships. Um, it takes work. It takes work. You've got to work <laughs> at it and if you want to protect it, right? Um, yeah. And I think this is just another facet of it. Absolutely. Well done and a great, a great campaign. Um, so, Hugo, before we started our call, we asked you to run around that house of yours, try and try and get the girls out of your way to try and rob three things in your house. So the three things we asked you to find and to muscle up were a piece of rugby memorabilia. So did you manage to find a piece of rugby memorabilia? And does it have a good story behind it, most importantly? I have got loads of memorabilia, not just rugby and sporting memorabilia, but I've got none of it in the house. Like the missus just won't have it. Um, um, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm the I'm in a household that is just dominated by women, and um, m- my wife doesn't really care that much for rugby. I mean, she, she, she's proud of what I've done, but I don't think she wants it dotted around the house. So we've got nice portrait pictures from family holidays and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of sporting memorabilia. No, not a chance. So, um, so I don't actually have anything physical with me um, to show or talk about. But um, that's all in storage. But I'm more than happy to tell you some tales. If is there, if there was one piece that you could find, which is probably in your parents' house or somewhere elsewhere in storage, yeah. what would be, I suppose, your most prized possession in relation to your rugby, your rugby career, and all that you have achieved? Rugby career, we touched upon it earlier. Um, I managed to get the ball from the third test of that Lions tour in 09 and I got the whole squad to sign it. And it's, yeah, it's, you play sport for loads of different reasons. Uh, one of the big parts of it are the memories. And um, just like a good song can take you back to a moment in time, as can sporting memorabilia. And that ball, um, uh, represent a lot to me. Um, the journey that I went to to, to play on the Lions, uh, that third test was incredible. I know we lost the series, um, but we won that match. And to have helped the team in a way to win that match uh, meant a lot to me. And to have signature of all the lads on it, um, yeah, so that's probably, uh, yeah, that's probably right up there for me. So we, we had Brian Driscoll on the show a couple of weeks ago and he spoke about the 2009 Lions tour and he spoke about how it actually worked out really well 
as a social element because of the timing of the games. Obviously, the timing of the games, are, you're laughing here. You must have a few stories to tell about the, the nights out and the bonding. Let's talk about the bonding that happened on that tour. It was the last of it was the last tour before like social media like took off. So we 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 probably got to enjoy ourselves. There was a buy in from everyone that after every game we would just have a drink. I remember like um, one midweek match, we got on a Lions bus and the Lions bus was not subtle. It's red fifty seater thing <laughs> with lines written across it. And we've turned up, I've forgotten where we're in South Africa, and we've parked the bus like outside a nightclub. Imagine that happening today. Like it just wouldn't happen today. And it waited there for us three o'clock afterwards, straight on the bus back. Like nothing was said. Um, but I mean, there's, 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 there's a lot of stories I could tell. And there's a lot of people I could probably stitch up. I don't think I want to do that. But <laughs> one of the, one of, one of, oh, geez. Um, I'll tell you a story about. Oh, I'll tell you what was really cool. So after the third test, like the, um, the series was done, seven week tour, um, all come to a close, and we knew we were going to have a big night on the Saturday, but we we're also going to have a really special day on the Sunday, and we all went out Saturday night. Um, I'll, I'll come back maybe and tell you this story another time. But Sunday morning, waking up, we went into our team room and uh, Daniel Craig, James Bond, has sent us 12 magnums of Bollinger and a note signed by him to say, like, uh, well done on the victory. Um, so that was a cool way to, like, start Sunday. What a legend. Yeah, it's a big rugby fan. He comes to loads of England games. He loves it. Always comes in the changing room. Um, yeah, so it was nice to get a couple of bottles of shampoo from uh, from James. Yeah. <laughs> nice story. <laughs> the second piece we asked you was a jersey that you'd swapped. So, what was your, I suppose, most special jersey that you have swapped? Or if you, ha- even though you mightn't have it in your house, what what do you yeah. think is your most special one? See, this isn't the most special jersey that I've got, and I think. Whenever you get players talking about their career, they only ever talk about all the good moments. And I think it's important just to have balance. Um, I believe in heaven and hell. Okay? And I think heaven and hell often can exist um, on the rugby pitch. I've experienced what heaven feels like on the rugby pitch, but I've also experienced what hell feels like on a rugby pitch. And the best thing about sport is it can be really humbling and so I played against Argentina in 2009 to so come off the back of a Lions tour, playing really well, felt great. And I got played, I got picked to play 15 for England. And this game was by far the worst game I ever played in my whole life. Like I'm talking from under 13s all the way through the worst game. Um, and as a, as a rugby player, it, um, the way in which you play, the way in which you perform, it's, it's got a lot to do with your own self-worth as well, I think. Um, and if you play badly, you feel bad about yourself. If you play great, you feel great about yourself. It's like quite simple, isn't it? And this day was the worst game. I played at 15. I couldn't catch a cold that day. I dropped every single high ball. Like, it's honestly, it was hammering it down the rain and I just, I couldn't catch a thing. And I thought I was like really good in the air. That was one part of my game that I thought, yeah, solid under a high ball. Like I went and chased every single restart, crossfield kicks, kick it onto Hugo's wing, he'd catch a ball, he'd score. And this day, I couldn't do it. 
And when you're really bad at the thing you think you're really good at, it, um, it takes a massive hammer into your confidence. And the reason why I think this shirt is special for me is because, yeah, just remember that sport can really humble you. And for every good moment that you had, like don't get too ahead of yourself. Don't get too carried away. And I used to have that shirt framed in my house because it was a good reminder as to, yeah, like, um, yeah, um, yeah, that you, yeah, don't get too carried away with yourself. So that's I'm why that jersey. Surprise, your better half didn't leave that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be getting I came back late. Yeah, exactly. For every time I came back late from a boys' night out, she's got uh, England, Argentina on the TV. <laughs> You weren't any good anyway. Like, who do you think you are? So, um, so yeah, that's the reason why I still have that jersey. Like, it's because I, I don't know. I just think it's important. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does. It's brilliant. Yeah, between your wife humbling you and I think your teammates, I'm sure if they're anything like our teammates, you know, they're, they'll keep you firmly on the ground anyway. And I'm sure they let yeah. you know about the stinker that you had that day. Um, yeah, too right. So the last thing is something non-rugby that you treasure. So hopefully this item is currently residing in your house, the fact that it is non-rugby. Yeah, I have it with me. It's uh, it's my wedding ring. Um, here it is. I've actually got three wedding rings. <laughs> um, I'm never allowed to take them off. So this is like one of those silicone ones so you can use it in the gym, Right. So it doesn't get mashed up. And then I've got a yellow gold one. And I'm of the opinion, like, girls love diamonds, right? Why can't bloke have them too? So I got another one made up, like, like full diamond set, because I thought if I'm going to splash out on her, I'm also going to splash out on me. So I've actually got three (laughs) wedding rings, and obviously they're all, like, quite symbolic. So there you are. So, yeah, my third item is my wedding bag. Ian, don't be getting ideas now about the diamond bling bling ring. <laughs> Do you think you'd be I can rocking see that yourself? You with a, I could see you with a diamond band, to be fair. Yeah, if Hugo's got it, Anna will want it on me, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but both of you are engaged, right? Engaged? Yeah, right? yeah, engaged, yeah. yeah. Um, when you, yeah, when so you both, both get we're both getting married both this summer, aren't we? Next, so yeah, 2021, hopefully, if everything yeah. goes ahead, yeah. Hopefully. Where? You get get married abroad or at home? Don't get married at home. Yeah, we had planned to go abroad, but Rugby World Cup and qualifiers and I suppose life like that, it's very hard to plan a wedding around a a rugby season that keeps moving with, I suppose, the current situation that we're in. So hopefully we make it to the World Cup and that I have that issue to deal with next summer. Okay, fair. Mads, I doubt I'll be invited to your wedding. Um, but I'm desperate to get to Vegas. If you haven't had your stag do yet, come on, please come. Like, just say, even if you're not going to Vegas, just send something through the post, and I'll just say to Mrs. I've got to go. Like, oh, I've not been to Vegas for years, and I we can sort something out 100. percent Yeah, please just make it official. Like, do you know that thick card with like gold embossed writing? If you just send that through the post, and uh, we'll make it official. Give me a green card to Vegas. We'll see you there. <laughs> and then Thank we can you. get you on again the next show and you can chat about it on the podcast then the next time <laughs> uh, I've, yeah I've, I've been nine times I love that place like it's brilliant savage 
The tent will be even better, I'm sure, whenever we're allowed to get on and playing again. (laughs) Um, Hugo, it has been an absolute real pleasure to have you on. Hopefully we can have you on another time and you can tell us some more of those stories that you have. But it has been a pleasure and thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Good luck. House of Rugby Ireland, here on Joe, together with Guinness. Game changed. So given the week that's in it, we have had a House of Rugby extra bonus episode. Um, myself and producer Pat caught up with Harlequins and England fullback Mike Brown for a really great chat. Pat also spoke with Freddie Burns, brother of Ulster in Ireland, out half Billy Burns. So keep an eye out on the podcast this week. So Ian, you are just fresh off a flight back from Italy. How has that, obviously a great win for Ulster, but how has it been actually coming through the airports and flying to different con- countries through COVID? You're one of the few people that actually gets to travel in the current situation. Yeah, it's very surreal. Like you're going through the airports and they're literally completely empty. I, you know, I don't think we saw anyone going through Belfast uh, airport on Sunday. There was no planes in the airport when we arrived in Italy. Through the airport, didn't see anyone and it was the same coming back. So, um, yeah, look, it's very unusual and something that I don't think we'll ever get used to. But we're you know, very blessed that rugby can continue and um, you know, it was another great win for Ulster. I think that's six in a row for us now. So on a nice, nice run of games, which is, which is great. And um, tell me, how did you get on with your Bronco last week? You were all nervous in the show, getting ready for it. How did you get on? I thought we were going on to more Guinness Pro 14 talk, but we'll go backwards a little <laughs> bit. Um, yeah. Oh, look, we had the Bronco last Tuesday. It was like the worst Tuesday ever. Hearing the news about the World Cup qualifiers cancelled, and then you reminded me of the Bronco score as we were midway through our conversation. Um, yeah, the Bronco is just a horrible test. I don't think you're ever prepared properly for it, or even though you think you're prepared, you think you're fit, you still it's awful. No matter how fit you are, you still push yourself to the limit and. I think the worst part of it was like the drive over as far as the HPC, just thinking about it and thinking, oh God, what's, knowing what's ahead of you because we've done them so often. Like I'm sure you're the same. Like we literally do them three, four times a year. So what, it's a 1.2K test with 30 turns in it, I think, or 20 turns in it. And it's the turns that kill you every single time. But we'd, I actually come late and a lot of the girls had done their Broncos before we got there because there's a session at six, a, sh- a session at seven and one at eight. So I was in the seven o'clock session and I just asked her, what's the best score? And then they're like 456 or 457. I was like, oh, Jesus, what a score. So like sub five is amazing for us, like really, really great. So I went out of the blocks way too fast, like absolutely bed off the line and by the second run I was like I'm not going to finish this Bronco <laughs> but it turned <laughs> and you know people are great like the girls are roaring at you and they're telling you you know go on you're great and you're like shut up I'm absolutely wrecked <laughs> and I actually have gone way too fast and there is no backing out at this stage but anyway I finished it and I got a PB so I was happy with my score my 509 so it's no Bowden Barrett and it wasn't a, it wasn't the best on the team but I was happy with myself so yeah all yeah, good on it it was done. What, what, what is in what is your best score been in the Bronco while we're while we're on it and while we're we're putting ourselves in trouble? Yeah, well, I I can tell you you'd have beaten a lot of the guys with your just uh, your five oh four. So that's good going. Um, just to explain to the listeners that the Bronco, as you said, it's a one point two kilometer test. So, but there's obviously a lot of turns. So you have to go out twenty meters, come back twenty meters, out forty meters, back forty meters, out sixty meters, 
back 60 meters and you do that five times repetitively and your score is effectively what time you get um, what time you complete it and i think you touched on it there that the worst part of it is by far the build-up to it because you're basically dealing with the demons of how hard are you going to push yourself and that's ultimately what it is um but yeah i, I think my best time is um 431 so <laughs> it's a, I'm, still, I'm a still bit a, off that yes but we'll, yeah, we'll get there eventually but I think as well with the Bronco, it, it, there are variable conditions. If you do it on a windy day, if you do it on a synthetic surface, if it's a very cold day, um, all factor into your score. So um, that's definitely something to keep in mind. And I'm sure some of our listeners might give it a go after hearing us talking about it. I actually dead right about the different surfaces and different conditions because we got sent all the girls' scores after that. And beside all of us who did it on the indoor Astro in the HPC, we had a little asterisk beside us and I actually felt robbed of my score that people are going to be like, oh no, they only got that score because they did it indoors on an Astro. And in fairness, it does actually have an effect on you to be able to do it indoors and on a synthetic surface. But... I don't want that to take from my, my score. I'm pretty happy with my score, <laughs> my score out there. Um, back to the Guinness Pro 14 coverage. Again, um, Leinster were phenomenal last night. They had the bonus point wrapped up by half time. Um, Edinburgh obviously are missing their internationals and they really are struggling in the Guinness Pro 14 at the moment. Yeah, I think it's really tough on, you know, the Scottish Italian sides, Scottish and Italian sides, when they lose their internationals, it just decimates their squads. Um, you know, for us in Ulster, we're only missing, you know, three, four, five guys. Um, and we've the strength and depth to be able to cope with that. Whereas if you look at Zebra last night or, or Glasgow or Edinburgh, they're having to go two and three deep in certain positions. And they just, I, they just simply don't have the depth that the, the Irish squads have. And, you know, I think if you look at you know our conference, you've got Leinster on thirty points, Ulster on twenty eight, and then you've got a big gap to I think Ospreys are on nine points, and it is really tough on those sides. But um, look, I'm sure they'll stick at it. And you know, the Scarlet's got a great win away against Connacht. You know, we all know how tough it is to win in, in the sports ground, and it probably showed that the, the two games that were cancelled for Connacht has unfortunately taken its toll. It's very disruptive, as we spoke about on the show last week. That. You know, you end up just having trying to have a training game, which never really replicates the intensity of a competitive match. Um, and you know, Scarlets were off the back of a good win at home against Ebro, where you know they possibly got a bit lucky, but would have been high on confidence from it, and and came over and put in a great performance against against Connacht. And we actually have them now this week, and you know, we know that we're going to be in for a really tough game. Yeah, like obviously great to see those Welsh teams back up and competing. We were chatting about it last week to Shane Williams about you know, how those Welsh teams need to start getting some successes. But I don't know about you, but I've only done some commentary at the sports grounds, but it honestly is the windiest place, the coldest place I've ever worked at. And there just seems to be a constant sideways wind and sideways rain at the sports grounds. And um, it wasn't any different. And conditions were absolutely atrocious to play in. It, it was really, really difficult. It was a lot of pick and goals. It was bad conditions. There was a lot of scrums, a lot of knock-ons. And I think that also had an effect on the game and, and, it, abso- and it absolutely impacted on Connacht's performance. Like, look at John Porch, look at their wingers, Alex Wooten. They're, they're guys that are nippy and that work really well on an astro or on really good surfaces because they can nip in and out and around you. But I suppose you have to look at the conditions too and that it doesn't really suit that Connacht team. 
Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the, the new Connacht team, the way they're playing, it actually suits them to be playing in good conditions, good weather, good surface. Whereas, you know, the Connacht team, maybe five, six, seven years ago, you'd have said, yeah, look, the sports ground with poor weather is a bit of a lever and they could beat really good teams on their day. Whereas, you know, the way they move the ball around now, I, I think when the weather is, is bad, it actually goes against them. Um, but, it, you know, in fairness, as bad as the weather was, the Scarlets put together some great passages to play. Like, the, the, I think they actually scored their two tries off the same move, which you don't see too often in a game, but they just executed it really well both times and, and, and two really good finishes. Um, you know, being really impressed with McNichol in the back three for, for the Scarlets. And if their pack can provide them with, you know, good front football, they've got dangerous backs to, you know, put away any team in the league, which is, which is good to see and bodes well for the Welsh sides. Yeah, also Munster getting that win again, five from five from a Munster team. That's a really great performance. Gavin Coombs was number eight and got a hat trick. Um, I think that's two or three weeks in a row we've seen the back row in Munster getting that player of the match. I suppose it shows the depth and the strength in the back row again in Munster with Gavin Coombs, but also we had Dan Levy back again with Leinster this weekend on another man of the match performance. So the back row is looking strong and obviously, you know, Really great to see Dan Levy back and obviously we're hoping for him to be back in an Irish jersey very soon. But I suppose he had to start with that first start with Leinster and a really great performance from him. Yeah, I think looking from the outside in, it's great to see how well he's been managed. You know, it was obviously a very serious knee injury that he had. Um, but, you know, Leinster took their time and didn't rush him back through his rehab. You know, there's one or two delays kind of at the tail end of it. And then they, they put him on the bench for the first few games and he came on, had you know really good impacts. Um, but they obviously felt, look, he's ready to go and he probably felt it himself. And, and he started at the weekend and it was great to see him, as he said himself after the game, like back to his old self. And he felt like he was physically where he needed to be and even better than, than he might have been before the injury. Um, but yeah, I suppose on, on, on the injury that he had, like, you know, for, for you personally, is there any injuries that you've had in your career that you felt, you might have lacked confidence off the back of coming back from it. Yeah, look, I think I've been pretty lucky that, you know, I haven't had too many really, I suppose, career-threatening injuries or bad injuries. Um, really just my, I broke my finger my very first Irish cap and I, I used to think the people who broke their fingers and didn't play were just like being soft, but I honestly <laughs> have never had a sore injury in my life. It was just like a cotton and bib, I think. And it was one of those, you know, bleak January days where you actually can't feel your hands. And I thought it was just, I thought it was just a sprain. And I looked down, it was completely the other way. So I'm going to have to try and get a fix before the wedding because it absolutely is. It's, um, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. I wonder if the camera can see me in it. It's, it's really, really bad. It's a big kick, no Oh, it's awful. But at the time, I think surgery was probably an option, but it was my very first Irish camp and my very first opportunity to, to play 15s for Ireland. And I just was like, can you strap it up, please? And then he's like, nah, there's no way we're strapping that up. So. Didn't go for the surgery and ended up training the week, the next week and get my first cap for Ireland two weeks later. But the amount of painkillers I was on and I had it strapped like I wasn't catching a ball into my hands for sure because of the pain. And there was just tears rolling down my eyes with the pain during the warm up. So I probably should have got it fixed and looked at. But at the time, playing for Ireland was the bigger picture, not a nice finger. And I'm glad, look, I'm glad I went for it. But so it was most recently my, I tore my calf back in January. Um, just ahead of the first game against Scotland and it was a grade two beat here so I think like grade two should be probably around what six weeks or so and you might know more about the grade two B thing but 
it wasn't good anyway. And I was given about six weeks, which essentially rules you out of a Six Nations. Like the worst possible timing to get an injury is right the week before Six Nations. But I think I was so lucky that I was in, I live near the HPC up out in Blanchetown and I was able to go in and see the physios and go and use the hot and cold pools and do all my rehab. And luckily one of the, um, one of the people that work with us on our team saw my rehab going pretty well and I was getting through all the stages pretty quickly and, you know, was meeting all the targets and I didn't have any pain and it was going really, really well. And they were able to use this like strength machine to test my strength on both sides of my calves and they were pretty equal, which meant they were, they kind of pushed me on. And the morning of the, the morning of the Scottish game, I met our physio at like 7am in the morning and went down as far as Energia Park and ran on the pitch on the Sunday which gave me then seven days to get back for the, the Welsh game the following week. So it was really quick, but without like the physio team and without being able to have that strength test done on my calf, I don't think I would have been back as quickly. But even at that, like I was running and I was constantly wondering, is it sore? Am I feeling something? But I think half the time I was making it up in my head, like I wanted to almost feel pain. Um, and I know you've had your fair share of injuries. You know, you've had groin reconstruction, you had shoulder or you had a groin injury, shoulder reconstruction. You know, they're pretty bad injuries. And I don't know, did you have the same type of mental, I suppose, battles with with returning to playing after those injuries? Yeah, certainly. Like the, I shoulder reconstruction back in 2009, kind of at the start of my, my career or even just before my career got going. And I was in the academy at the time. So the physios were very patient. Like there was no massive rush on getting me back for games and I even look back on it now like it was a six month injury but how far me- you know medicine has come within the sporting uh, field in the last 10 years it's, it's probably now a, a four month injury and even in recent times you've seen the likes of James Ryan and, and Robbie Henshaw come back in, in less than that um, which is just amazing really as a sign of the, the quality of the rehab and, and how how closely they work with the surgeons and, and having the trust to be able to push a player back into contact sport after you know big surgeries but yeah I didn't I, I found the shoulder one not too bad because it was quite a clear pathway and gradually as I went through the rehab my confidence came back now when I was back playing you're kind of ready to make your first tackle on the shoulder you're hoping that nothing goes too wrong and off the back of that going well your confidence builds and you start putting a bit more force behind them and um I've been very lucky. I've had no issues with it since. It's probably the shoulder I prefer tackling on now as my career has gone on. Um, but yeah, the groin injury I had was was a much more testing one mentally because it wasn't one that you could really see. And even on a scan, it only really showed up as you know tendonitis in my groin, which isn't that serious an injury. But I knew myself, I didn't feel well. I didn't feel like I was moving well. I could sidestep sometimes and not have pain. And then other times I'd get searing pain. And it was the exact same with kicking out of hand or goal kicking. So it, it took a, a big toll on me mentally. And, you you know, if it's hurting your sidestepping every few times, eventually you'll just stop sidestepping or you'll cut back on the kicking you're doing or you won't kick the ball as hard. And very quickly it started having a knock-on effect into how I was playing. Um, and it what killed me with it was it wasn't a black and white injury like a, a broken bone and they're saying look you're out for six weeks um you know i took a six-week break and at the end of it i was no better i'd probably gotten worse because the rehab wasn't working and it was only really when i came back to ireland and and uh, worked out in the Santry sports clinic with with enda king and he said look the big picture here is there's a few things going on with your body that you need to sort out take the pressure away from your groin 
And, you know, looking back on it now, it was probably, it was three years ago, but it was, it was really 12 months of rehab and changing how I ran and figuring out that, you know, the shoulder reconstruction I had had was actually having an effect on my groin and how I run with the high rib carriage was pulling on my groin and I had to change that, that I eventually kind of pieced it all together. And um, I think those injuries are the worst where there's a lot of moving parts going on. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure for you, even with your calf, like did you, as a winger, you, you're operating at like top speeds. It's different for maybe front five guys or, or girls who've come back and they're not operating at, you know, nine, 10 meters per second for you. Like, did you feel I can open up here? I'm ready to go. Or did you feel even in the, in your first few games back, you were holding back a bit? No, I think I was pretty cagey, you know. Um, it happened originally just in a skill session on a Friday night, going from a standing static position to an acceleration. And like, as a winner, you said, it, you know, it's a not to five that you need. And yeah, I was absolutely scared it was going to happen again because it happened so innocuously, so easy. It was just a skill session where I was running a support line. I changed my line, picked up the pace and then tore my calf into a grade two, which, you know, just honestly just felt like a, a twinge. And I was like, I've never had a torn muscle before, thankfully didn't know what it was like and just kind of thought it was nothing. I was walking and again, so it can just happen so easy. I think that's the thing with any injury. It's just the fear of it. But I suppose once the game started, I was fine. It was more the warm up and it was more the pre, I suppose the first one or two runs, but I actually ended up picking, I think, picking up a quad tear the same game back. So I think I was focusing on trying to get through my quad. So I was like, I actually didn't know which one was worse. So, you know, you just picked up another injury to try and forget about the first injury. It's not ideal, but uh, look, you your, get, rear, just... your rear chain had switched off. Everything in yeah. the front is overworking. Oh, and I don't know yeah. if you remember that game either, but that was the Welsh game back in Storm Kira where genuinely I've never played in conditions like that before so my calf and my quad were not the main things on my on my agenda I was trying to deal with the ball coming in a storm where with data scrum inside their 22 and I was like they are going to boot this down the field and I have to try and catch it with hailstones running into my face where I can't even see the ball so I had bigger things to I had bigger fish to fry that day um anyway okay before we go we want to induct the latest member into our Guinness House of Rugby Hall of Fame. So this week we, we thought it would be really nice to include someone who has been very active on our House of Rugby Facebook group. Whether that is hot takes on Johnny Sexton or bigging up the Springboks Chasing the Sun documentary, it's great to see you so involved. So congratulations to B. Mulholland. So B. Mulholland, you are now inducted into the Guinness House of Rugby Hall of Fame this week. So congratulations to you. Cheers to everybody for watching and listening as always. A big thank you to producer Pat, Paul, Dermot, Ian, Anthony and everyone that helped on getting this show together. This has been House of Rugby Ireland here on Joe together with Guinness Slán Gafoe. House of Rugby Ireland here on Joe together with Guinness. Game changed.